only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding You can find this on page 59 of the Pew Bible. And as you're turning there, I'll give you a little context about the passage we're going to tackle this morning. Israel is God's people and they've been enslaved in Egypt for really some 430 years. They have, uh, there's a new pharaoh in town and he has their worst interest in mind. And he's abusing them and he's uh, mistreating them and he's literally killing them. And they begin to crowd to God. They long to be delivered. And God hears their prayer and he does the most amazing thing that, that's ever been recorded in all of the Old Testament. He sends these ten plagues upon the Egyptians. And then he del- and Pharaoh says, please get out of my town. Please get out of my country. Please leave me alone before we die anymore, any more of us. And God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And as Israel flees, Pharaoh pursues them. Pharaoh pursues them and God parts the Red Sea. And as the Israelites go through on dry land, the seas close back up on Pharaoh and his army and destroy them. And God renews and reaffirms the promise with the Israelites that he, made to, that he made to Abraham many years ago. He says, I've got good news for you. I'm taking you to the promised land. I'm taking you to the land flowing with milk and honey. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest imagination. And you are going to be a blessing to all the earth. I can't imagine the sense of anticipation and excitement that the Israelites must have felt. They're no longer under slavery. They're out from under Pharaoh's hand. And God is taking them to a world of amazement. And yet as you read the passage at hand, you would think that they're going to the grave and not going to the glory that God has for them. Because God has them in the wilderness. He's testing them. He's trying to help them understand who He really is. And they are frustrated about it. They get so frustrated that they're ready to give up. They're ready to quit on God because in their heart of hearts, they believe that God has quit on them. I imagine there's some people in this, this room this, this morning who feel the same way. There's some of you here that are going through, wilder, through the wilderness. You're in a place of deep darkness and despair. You put your trust in God. You believe the promises, the promise that God makes. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And yet right now, you can't detect even the slightest sense or notion that God cares for you. You believe He's forgotten you. You've been trying pretty hard. You've been putting forth your best effort, your best foot forward. It's about time for God, God to show up and start doing something, isn't it? It's about time for God to really show us that He loves us, to really show us that He cares for us. He's made all these promises to bless us, and all of us, some of us, feel this frustration and burden. God gives us an answer. He gives us an answer this morning in this passage. He answers our question, where are you? Are you among us or not? And He answers it this morning with a word of grace. Give attention to God's Word as we hear His answer to us. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. 
according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's Word stands forever. Let's ask the Lord to open this passage up to us this morning. My great God and King, You are the Good Shepherd, and we're Your wandering sheep. And Father, there's some of us here this morning who deeply are weary. We're tired. We're exhausted. We just want to break. We just want to know that You're there. We just want to know that You love us and that You care for us. And we might have it all backwards, Lord, but right now our hearts are hard. And we're frustrated. Lord, there's others of us that that we want to believe, but we're having a hard time believing. And so we ask You, great King of all, to condescend to us this morning. Remind us of who You are. Remind us that Your promises are true. Remind us that You will never leave us or forsake us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, and we lived in probably the the neighborhood that all children would dream of living in. It was just a small little suburban neighborhood with this massive forest or wilderness, or we called them the woods behind our house. And that's where it all went down. There was the red dirt hill, and my brother and I still have fond memories of this great mound of dirt. There was the creek where we built fires that we weren't supposed to build. There was we knew the we knew the lay of the land back there in in in, in the wilderness in the in the woods behind our house. And we liked to play with our friends in the neighborhood. But there was a, a period when something strange happened. There was a, a set of apartments where some of the more low-income families in our neighborhood would live. And there was this little girl that showed up at our house every now and then. And it was a strange way that she would arrive because her dad drove a moped. And on the back of the moped, there was a flatbed, flatbed trailer that he was pulling behind the moped. And on the flatbed trailer was this little girl who was kind of kneeling down. And she would ride up and they would stop in front of our house. And my brother and I would be in the front yard. And this little girl would climb off the flatbed trailer and come play with us. Her name was Kathy. We never quite figured out why Kathy wanted to come over and play with us because she was younger than we were. And we never invited her. But she came anyway. So she showed up at the house. And I can, I can remember uh, pretty distinctly one example when, number one, Kathy was a bit strange. And I remember when she would say, you know, I got to think. And she'd go, and I don't know, that's 25 years ago. And that's something you just don't forget. And so uh, Kathy always had to think. 
And uh, one of the things that Kathy had one day was that she was late home. She was late to get home. But she was so proud, the whole reason she'd come over to see us this particular day was to show off her brand new white Sunday shoes. She was so proud of these white dress shoes. And she was just walking around and prancing around. She said, I'm late to get home. I said, Kathy, I'm pretty sure it was me. My brother was the better one of the two. I said, Kathy, um, I know how you can get home quicker than normal. I've got a perfect shortcut for you. So I sent her through the woods. And I told her if she, would get, if she would take this trajectory, this kind of line, that it would take her straight to the apartments. It was the quickest way home. And I knew deep in my heart where I was sending her. So the next time I saw Kathy, she came up and she said, Oh my goodness, you won't believe something terrible happened. I said, What was that, Kathy? She said, Well, that way that you sent me was like the marsh. It was like the soggiest. I sunk down to my knees in mud and my shoes were ruined. And in my heart, I was laughing because that was the whole purpose of me sending Kathy that shortcut way was to ruin her Sunday shoes. And then, um, and that's what happened. Well, terrible thing that I, I guess I won't tell you. There were some other things that we did to Kathy that were, there was one thing we did that was a little even worse than that. And so Kathy finally got tired of us and she stopped coming around because she realized that we didn't care for her. She realized we didn't have her best intentions in mind. She realized we were taking advantage of her. And I think that's kind of where the Israelites find themselves in this passage today. They've heard about this God who on the outside seems like he has all their best interest in mind. But they're in the wilderness and they're tired and they're frustrated. They've been under Pharaoh's thumb for many years. They're ready to give up. They're pretty angry with God because in their heart of hearts, they're saying, we've been doing the best that we can. And you keep bringing us to these place of dry desert and wilderness and wasteland. And we're tired of you promising us all these things that aren't coming true. You see, they believe that God doesn't have their best interest in mind, that God has ulterior motives, that God desires to mess with our lives. He likes to kind of run us around and laugh at us while we exhaust ourselves and worry ourselves and we live in this weary land. And they're not going to put up with it any longer. Something's got to change. God's got to change. And yet as we look at the passage and we take a closer look, we find out that it's not God who needs to change. It's the Israelites that need to change. You see, the problem is not that God has abandoned them. God hasn't simply enslaved them into a different kind of slavery. But they're enslaved by their own poor theology, their own low view and wrong view of God. You see, we're very much like them. We love God. We're fired up for Jesus. We're singing hymns and we're doing praise songs and we're doing handstands for God as long as good things are happening for us. But once bad things start happening, once things don't go our way, once our prayers don't get answered the way we want them answered, then we start questioning God. We start putting God on notice and letting Him know, hey, all right, I'm going to give you one more chance, God. This time you better get your act together. Because we're about tired of this. We start getting bent out of shape. I'm not talking about people that aren't Christians. I'm talking about people that are Christians. This is how we respond to God. So oftentimes I hear people talk about the God they find in the Bible, and especially it's popular to talk about the God that we find in the pages of the Old Testament. We want people to take notice and see this God who is so gruesome and so ugly and so mean-hearted and cold-hearted. This God is not sensitive or compassionate. And we, we, we tell people to look at the portrait of this God, and the problem that comes is as we stare at the portrait of the God of the Old Testament, we find out that it's not He that's ugly. He's not the one who's messed up. It's us. He's not the one who's cold-hearted. 
We find a picture of a God of compassion. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God of long-suffering. You see, He brings us out of our slavery in only a moment. But the slavery that's within our hearts stays there and it's a process that's required to, to, to eradicate it from our lives. This morning, what I want you to see is this. I want you to see how God responds to you when you question God, when you test the Lord, when you ask, is He really there? And I want you to see this, that it's God's grace alone that transforms our hearts and turns our testing of God into trusting in Him. It's God's grace alone that transforms our hard hearts and turns our testing of God into trusting in Him. I want to talk about this really only under two points. I want to talk about our problem and God's solution. You see, the problem that we have is that we're so often testing God. That we're, we're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim. Shortly before this, the Israelites found themselves in a place where the water was too bitter to drink. They were there for three days and had nothing to drink. And when they finally got to this place where there was water, it was bitter. And they began to grumble and complain. And God said, Moses, throw a piece of wood in the water. And Moses did so, and the water was sweet, and they drank to their heart's content. And then God took them to this place called Elam, where they camped by 12 springs of water and under 70 palm trees, a place of paradise. Shortly thereafter, after they left Elam, they went to the wilderness of sin, and they began to grumble again because they're hungry. God brought them out of Egypt so that they would starve to death, and God hears their complaint, and instead of judging them, He rains down bread from heaven, and He satisfies their hunger. And now they find themselves again at a place, this time there's no water to drink. And they're angry with God. And they're frustrated. And the whole of this, this account hangs on two words that we find in verse 7. Two Hebrew words, the word Massa and Meribah. Massa means testing. And Meribah means quarreling because the Israelites are angry. And that's what they've come to do with God. To, to quarrel with Him and to test them. And in verse 2, they make a hostile demand of Moses. This isn't just some little lame threat. They mean business. And it says they quarreled with Moses. And this is what they said. Give us water to drink. And Moses is afraid because he realizes what's going on here. They are lodging an official complaint, a charge. The word quarrel here, here means to, to contend. It means to to lay a, a, a legal claim, an assertion against someone, to take them to court. And Moses realizes that the Israelites mean business. That they're not playing around this time. And he realizes something even more when he says, why do you test the Lord? You know, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? On down in a, verse 4 it says, So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. You see, Moses realizes that they're not just talking about mob violence, but what they want to do is actually have a court convene. And they're going to do a legal form of execution. They're going to stone them. You're not, not a whole bunch of people just randomly throwing stones. We're talking about the people who are the witnesses coming forward first to actually execute the person who's guilty. And the basis for their charge is this. They're accusing Moses of criminal negligence, of manslaughter. It hadn't happened yet, but it's about to. He's brought them out there so that they're going to die. And they're frustrated. And they're angry. And they're at the end of their rope. But Moses cuts to the chase and realizes that it's not really Moses that they're angry with. He says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord in verse 2? You see, they're not angry with Moses so much as they're angry with God. 
And Moses is the representative of God. God's nowhere to be found. So Moses will have to do. He'll have to be the one that bears the punishment on God's account. You see, as we dig deeper in the passage, we realize that they're putting God on trial. God's in the dock. God's the one who's guilty. They're angry with God. They're charging Him with breach of covenant. They're saying, God, You promised us a land. You promised to bless us. And You promised to make us a blessing. And those things were all hogwash. And we're pretty tired of it. And so now it's time for you to pay up. Now it's time for you to answer up. And since you're not here, Moses will have to do. They're not charging God with with criminal negligence, really. They're not charging God with, with manslaughter or even homicide. They're charging God with genocide, the deliberate and systematic destruction of a racial, political, or cultural group. God is simply just laughing up in His high heaven. He's brought these people out into the nowhere land so that He can put an end to their race. And they're not going to put up with it anymore. They demand justice. They demand that God sit in the dock. They, they demand that God answer for His wrongdoing. And they want to stone Him. doesn't really make sense when you look at their history. <laughs> because God's done nothing but be good to them. God, God brought them out of slavery, out, of, out from under the oppression of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God did the most amazing grand act ever recorded in the Old Testament. He parted the Red Sea. He's promised them. He's reminded them. He went by cloud during the day and pillar of fire at night. He sweetened the water when it was bitter. He rained manna from heaven when they were hungry. And now they find themselves again questioning God. You see, it's not so much that God has left them as much as Israel has a short memory. They have a selective memory. You would almost say that they have a bad memory. This past week I was eating at Witch Witch, which is one of my favorite places to eat around TCU, and there's a lady in there whose name's Becky, and she knows my name. And I go in there, and she always says, Hey, Rob, it's good to see you again. And She had met Jess, our intern, this week, and she said, I just met Jess and found out she works for you, or works with you. And I said, Yeah. She does. And uh, so I ordered my sandwich and I was feeling pretty good. You know, it's, it's one of those things. It's like cheers where everybody knows your name. It feels good when somebody knows your name. They call you by name. And at which which they know my name. And so I was appreciative of that. So I had Wells and Simeon with me because Kendall's out of town on a, on a, a mom's group trip. And uh, so anyway, we were eating lunch and uh, it's Friday. And I noticed that something was awry here because I had ordered before five other people and two things went wrong. Number one, they called my name, and I went up to get my sandwich. Actually, Wells did. And when she got there, they put, took it back. So that was a little strange. The second thing was five other people that came after me got their sandwiches before me. And I started thinking, you know, it's not right here, you know. I mean, I appreciate it, Becky, you know. I appreciate you remembering my name and all, but, you know, we've been sitting here. I mean, I've been forced to sit here with my two children that I love and actually talk to them and enjoy the air conditioning and a cold beverage. Can't believe you would do that to me. Can't believe you would make me wait for 10 minutes for my sandwich. And um, pretty frustrated about this. So I was trying to think, you know, I might need to go talk to Becky about this. I know you gave me two stamps yesterday instead of one so that I'm that much closer to a free sandwich. But today, five people went before me and I'm a little aggravated about it. And that's kind of what we see here for Israel. They're a little frustrated. You know, they have a very bad memory. God's done some pretty amazing things and they're pretty aggravated about it. It's like a child that doesn't get their way. Their parents done everything. Their parent gave them everything possible to imagine for Christmas. But they don't get to stay up, you know, 15 minutes later on, on, on Christmas night. And so they're angry. You hate me. You hate me. I don't love you either. I don't love the fact that you just mortgaged the house for my Christmas. And so um, you hate me. 
Where are you? Where did you go? And that's basically what's going on here with Israel. We want to put God, they want to put God in the dock. They want God to answer for all of his atrocities. Kind of reminds me when we were moving here from, from Greenville, South Carolina. I was like, God, we're going to a foreign land. We don't know anybody in Texas. We've never even been there before other than the interview. And we're, we just bought this new house, and we'd been praying for months that God would help us sell the house we already had before we moved, and He didn't answer that prayer. So we get here. I'm carrying two mortgages, and I just want God to know, okay, God, clue bus here for a moment. Okay, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm not making any money. I'm paying two mortgages. This is a prayer. This is a prayer. I thought you wanted to answer this. I thought you wanted me to pastor your people. Where did you go? We get so frustrated over his unanswered prayer. I get, we come to the, we, we just blow our fuse in the blink of an eye because we fail to remember how God, how good God really is to us. You see, as we take a close look, we realize that the Israel doesn't have a, a complaint to lodge against God. He's not the one who's in the wrong. They're the one that's in the wrong. They're the ones that are to blame because they have this fickleness about them. They're skeptical, hard-hearted nature. They're cynical toward God. They're the ones that should be in the dock. We're the ones that should be in the dock. We're the ones who should be on trial. So how does God respond when we lodge blasphemous assertions against Him? Look in verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff, the staff, with which you struck the Nile and go. Okay, something, God's basically saying this. If you want a trial, perfect. I'll give you a trial. You want a trial? I'll give you a trial. You want justice? No problem. I'm, I'm, I'm all about justice. I'm ready to give you some justice. And so God says, all right, Moses, let's keep going with this court theme here. What I want you to do is I want you to get the elders, because they're the judges over Israel. They're the jury. So gather them together. Get all the jury together here. And then the second thing I want you to do, Moses, is I want you to get that rod. You know that one that you struck the Nile, the one that, that brought judgment upon the Egyptians and turned the Nile into blood? Bring that, bring that rod along, because in all of culture in these particular days, the rod was two things. Number one, it was the symbol of authority and justice. And the second thing the rod was, was it was the instrument for punishment. It was the means that God used to punish the people, or that God's people used to punish those who were guilty. And so Moses gets this crew together, and God says, and I want you, Moses, to be the judge. I want you and the elders to pass before the people. Now, I want you to think just for a moment that now all of a sudden something's going south here. It's kind of like when you're going down the road, and uh, you realize that you've been going about 85 miles an hour, and you realize you were in a 55 zone, and you see blue lights behind you, and your heart sinks because you know that things are about to end, and you're thinking, my insurance is about to go up, or I'm going to jail because I'm, I'm way over the line here. And all of a sudden, what happens is that the blue lights pass you by. That's what happens to Israel here. They see authority and judgment coming down on them, bearing down on them, and yet it passes them by. Because the most unthinkable thing in all the Bible takes place in verse 6. I think this might be, the, this is one of the most perplexing verses in all the Bible because of what God says here. He says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. God the superior, God the king of all things, says, I am going to submit myself to your authority. I'm going to stand before you. I, the superior, am going to take the place of the inferior. You are going to stand in judgment over me, Moses. I'm going to be on trial. I'm going to take your place. Justice is going to fall upon God. 
Last night I was talking to my daughter Wells, and she asked me what I was preaching on this morning. And uh, I said, well, I'm preaching on the, on, on the rock. I'm preaching on Moses striking the rock and the water coming from it. And she said, striking a rock? I said, yeah, you know, striking the rock, water comes from it. Why would you hit a rock? Water, I mean, water doesn't come from a rock. It's kind of the point here. It's kind of the point of this whole verse. God's standing before man? What's going on there? doesn't make sense. God's standing before man. That's the, that's the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that God takes our place. That God brings water. That God brings salvation out of the most unlikely source. That we're the ones that are supposed to be standing there and God's the one who's supposed to be judging us. And God tells Moses, I'll stand on the rock before you at Horeb. You raise the staff. You raise the rod. And you strike me. And water will flow from the rock. How does God respond? What's God's solution to our problem? What's God's solution to our question? Are you among us or not? He doesn't say, get your act together. He doesn't say, all right, I'm going to give you one more chance to start getting, getting on board here with the God plan and the God train. No, God doesn't respond like that. God's response is long suffering. The Israelites are tired of God. Moses is tired of Israel, but God doesn't grow tired of us. That is amazing, my friends. God seeks to meet and serve the needs of the guilty. God takes the place of the guilty people. And Moses raises the rod and God gives them what they don't deserve and doesn't give them what they do deserve. God doesn't judge them. God doesn't kill them, but God satisfies their thirst. And Moses strikes the rock and water flows from it. You see, my friends, we take God to court and God takes us to the cross of Christ. And this is how I want you to see that. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 10 of the first letter, the first four verses, this is what it says. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. You see, Israel is deserving of God's judgment and condemnation. But God raises the rod through His instrument, instrument Moses and tells Moses, don't strike the people, strike me. Don't strike the people. They want to know if I've left them. And there's so much proof that I've not left them. Don't strike the people, strike me. You see, it was, it was, a prof, it was prophetical of what God was going to bring to happen one day and has already happened now. We take God to court and God takes us to the cross of Christ. It's a picture of Jesus standing before Pilate and he is not guilty. And Pilate knows he's not guilty. But the guilty man Barabbas is released. Just like we're released. And Jesus is scourged. They take this rod, this cat of nine tails, and they lash his back and rip off the skin. And according to Israelite law, you were only supposed to beat someone 40 times. But they beat Jesus far more than that. And he was mocked. And he was ridiculed. And he was stripped naked. And he was nailed to a tree and hung there to die. An innocent man dying for guilty people. You see, it's a picture of how God, Jesus, how God loves us because He hates His Son. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, I thirst. 
He says in the Gospels, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsook His Son. He caused His only Son to thirst so that He might satisfy you and me with good things, so that He might never forget us. God condemns His one and only Son to death so that we might be justified, declared right in God's sight. Guilty people justified. God forgets His one and only Son so that you would never be forgotten because He chooses by His grace to remember you and me. Jesus is cut off from the land of the living. He's cut off from fellowship in the face of the Father. And we, in turn, are adopted into His family as His very own sons and daughters. This is the Gospel. Jesus is enslaved to our sin, and we are set free. Hallelujah. Jesus cries out, it is finished. Because the way that God responds to people like you and me who are guilty, who ask, where have you gone? I want to put you on trial. I want to judge you. God says, I love you. I love you because I hated my own son so that I can love you. Jesus paid it all. We don't pay anything. Jesus paid everything. Jesus paid it all. How does God respond? When we come to Him with our our petulant problems, we come to Him and we're so prone to test Him and not to trust Him. And God says this, I delight to show you mercy and grace. I love to love you. You see, we take God to court and God takes us to the cross of Christ. God delights to love us. He delights to show us mercy and grace. You see, my friends, grace alone turns our testing into trusting. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the Gospel, that it's good news. We can get so used to hearing it, so used to to hearing how You love us and how You die for us. Lord, help that never to grow dull. Lord, minister to our weary hearts. Remind us that You are there. That when we're in the wilderness, Lord, point us toward Jesus on the cross. We pray this in His precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away